This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Where do we stand in the crypto cycle? Are we now in a full-blown bear market, or is this a mere breather before the next run-up to all-time highs? The future is unknowable, but there are some indicators that might help point us to the overall health of the crypto market. For example, let's look at Grayscale Trust, which is a way for institutions to gain exposure to Bitcoin without having to own Bitcoin itself. Grayscale traded at a premium of 30 to 40% of Bitcoin just a few months ago and is now trading at a discount. What does this tell us about the state of institutional demand for Bitcoin? Another factor to keep an eye on is what is happening in decentralized finance or what is known as DeFi. A common criticism of cryptos a few years ago was that they generate no income stream. Well, that's no longer true. Coming out of this space, I'm talking about the DeFi space, are some astounding technologies which allow you to earn a return on gold, cryptos, and stable coins. Joining us to help navigate our way through this maze is Brett Hope Robertson, investment analyst at crypto investment company Rivix. Hi, Brett. Why don't you help us out here? Where do we stand in the crypto cycle? Are we in a bear market or is this a breather before the next run up to all time highs? How's it, Kieran? Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, that's uh, quite a question to start off with. Um, so when assessing the, the crypto market, uh, there's a couple of factors that I like to look at. Um, but what I would say is, to me, it looks like we're in a quite a similar position to July of 2013. Um, and I'll show you, well, I'll track to you why in a second. So basically, the factors I kind of look at is something called a stock to flow model. I'm not sure if you've uh, heard of it, but... I've heard of it. Maybe just explain what that is. Yeah, I will do. Um, the stock to flow model uh, basically was developed as a simple model to, to value scarce resources like commodities, like gold. And, and basically what it is, is the current stock of the commodity, so the current total supply of the commodity against the production flow, which is the amount that's mined every year. So for Bitcoin, it's the mining reward over the current supply. And we can map this out because we know what the Bitcoin mining cycle is and that every four years, the halvening happens. And so what the community of crypto have done is built the stock to flow model for Bitcoin. 2021 looks oddly similar to 2013 and the fact that both of these times we've seen that Bitcoin has dropped below the stock to flow model price. Um, and they've dropped below the price at roughly the same time, close to a thousand days before the next halving. So if we were to go on to say that this was an exact replica of 2013, we would see that in 2013, they shot up into December into all time highs again. If this were to happen in 2021, we would probably see a Bitcoin price of over $100,000 by the end of the year. Now, I know that sounds a bit ludicrous, but stranger things have happened in this market. Um, another chart I like to look at for viewing of where Bitcoin's going in the future is a log chart for the simple reason that this is a great way to look at long-term data, the price, the log price of, of Bitcoin. The log bring their logarithmic scale, right? Yeah. Okay. And... Um, Basically, what we see is, again, massive similarities with 2013. 2013's mid-year cycle hit a high on the 8th of April. This mid-year cycle was basically one week later on the 13th of April. The bottom was locked in in 2013 on this mid-year pullback on the 1st of July. And we seem to have been roughly pulling into our bottom now, I think, is locked in around the 19th of July. Now, I know this could be a massive coincidence, but... 
the case for it being a mid-cycle pullback is, is growing ever stronger. Um, and if we do see something play out, the logarithmic chart would be saying around 138,000 Bitcoin by December. Now, these are big numbers, as I said, and they could be wrong. But this is kind of what we're seeing from a long-term view, that we kind of look very similar to the mid-cycle pullback of 2013. And that's pretty encouraging. The, the, but by the way, I think the one thing to point out, the, the halvening that you talk about, is uh, that happens every four years with Bitcoin, which is basically when they halve the rate at which Bitcoin is released into the market. So your stock-to-flow model there is really the rate at which new Bitcoin is being mined in relation to the overall availability of Bitcoin in the market. Have I got that correct? Exactly right. All right. And, and that's been a fairly accurate indicator of where Bitcoin should be. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's there's deviations from that. And, it, you know, is at the moment, it's, we're in a what looks to many people like a bear market. But at other times, you know, the, the Bitcoin was going parabolic. So it's wild and it's volatile. But there is some sort of baseline there that can help us guide us where the Bitcoin price should be. Yeah, it's actually funny you say that. It's actually at its lowest deviation from stock to flow model. It's pretty much ever been in history. So that's a strong case for the fact that it could be at its bottom and the base should be locked in. Well, the interesting thing is just today, the Bitcoin price is nudging towards $40,000 again. So what's behind that? I mean, bearing in mind that we were down at about $32,000 not so long ago, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, so I think um, the, the B Word conference has been a huge boost. I mean, you had uh, Jack Dorsey, Kathy Wood, and uh, Elon himself, just quite a prominent group of people with regards to institutional companies and crypto world itself. Um, and they all three came out very positive for the Bitcoin future. They, they wiped away any kind of concerns of Tesla or SpaceX selling their Bitcoin. Um, and all three seem to be very keen on pushing this um, this asset class forward for the future. So I think you're seeing a lot of, finally, some positive um, news coming out after, I mean, you can say it's been three months of just pure bad news coming out almost every day. Um, and so I think this is the first break we're seeing in that. Um, there's also been a little bit of speculation that, that Amazon might be accepting uh, crypto, but then this is also very wild speculation um, with no real relevance yet. But I think you're seeing people react to some of that news as well. Okay. Are there any other key indicators to watch in assessing where we are in the crypto cycle? I mean, what are some of the other tools that you would use? Um, yeah. So um, the other thing I indicate I use is a indicator called the Bitcoin liquidity supply ratio. And this is the number of coins held by participants with little history of selling. So in the crypto world, we call them strong hands. These are people that, that hardly ever sell. And that gets divided, that number, by the number of coins held by speculative participants. So people with what the crypto community call weekends, people that trade in and out. And what you're seeing is after this big crash, and now we're sitting between a range of 30,000 to 40,000, let's be moving around. You're seeing these big long-term holders, these strong hands, so to speak, accumulating coins off the retail or speculative trader. And now this is always in history proven to be a very strong indicator of future growth in, in Bitcoin as these long-term holders are really backing the coin. So 
you're basically seeing retail investors getting shaken out and long-term holders accumulating for the future. Another indicator we, well, I seem to look at quite a bit is something called the whale wallet address numbers. So this is the number of wallets that are seen as whale wallets um, and what the number of them, if they're increasing or decreasing. Now, a whale in crypto terms is someone who has a thousand Bitcoins or more in his wallet or her wallet. And what we're starting to see at these levels again is we've had the biggest significant uptick actually in July of these wallet numbers going up. So again, that's showing that whales are coming back, the confidence in the market is coming back, and uh, it, it, it paves for a, a good way um, for Bitcoin into, into December, I think. Okay, so the whale wallets are at the highest that they've been in how long, did you say? No, 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 they're not at the highest they've been. They've, they're the highest uptick they've been. The highest uptick, okay. In this year, in this last year, yeah. They came off quite a bit um, in the sell-off, and, and now they're starting to, to find a level and and, and Whales are starting to come back and buy. So there does seem to be some underpinning for this this baseline price here of about thirty two thousand um, dollars. There was also speculation that it could actually drop to twenty, which would take us back to the all time high that we reached in December twenty seventeen. It's not that that can't happen, but I, I guess with now it's a shade under forty thousand. That's beginning to look uh, a little bit more unlikely. Yeah. But one of the things I wanted to bring up with you was was China's attitude towards crypto mining. And it recently banned crypto mining. MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor, he called this a $1 trillion mistake by China. And yet El Salvador recognized Bitcoin as legal tender and is probably the first of many countries that will go this route. What's your view of this? Are countries going to try and tighten controls and regulations around crypto or are they confused as to how to respond? Yeah, so this is this is always a tricky one to answer. Um, with regards to the regulation, look, I think El Salvador has really been a prime example of that it's that it's possible to have Bitcoin as legal tender, and I can only think that this is a positive step in the in the right direction for the whole community. So I think countries will look to them as an example, and you might see a few more countries come out. But the real answer is we we don't really know what the future holds with regards to the regulation, but. What I would say is that I find it very hard to deny crypto and Bitcoin's place in that future. Um, it's becoming ever, ever harder to deny them. With regards to the ban in China, look, this has been a big contributor, obviously, to the weakness we've seen in Bitcoin over the last few months. But I do believe as a whole, this is going to be the biggest positive for the bull case of Bitcoin. And I'll kind of tell you why. It's no secret that Bitcoin mining has been largely centered around China. About two thirds of the production of Bitcoin mining production was in China at one point. Um, so this led to massive concerns that Bitcoin mining is actually overly concentrated in one region, which obviously exposes the network to the risks of that region, which is actually pretty ironic um, that the biggest decentralized cryptocurrency has a centralization risk. But with this ban coming. We've seen a lot of Bitcoin mining operations move off to North America and Kazakhstan. So this ban kind of puts those risks to bed. And the migration basically starts to decentralize this previously centralized Bitcoin hash rate, which is the mining power. So I do think it's one of the biggest and most significant steps uh, Bitcoin has made towards decentralization. And I can only imagine that it's going to be a real boost for crypto in the future. I mean, we've seen China have never been a fan 
of innovative tech anyway. Yes. I see a lot of the, the Bitcoin miners are moving, as you say, to Kazakhstan and to Texas in the United States. Yeah. But is there not a danger that that in itself could become another source of concentration? Who knows what happens in Texas or in Kazakhstan going into the future? Or does this really just demonstrate that you know Bitcoin miners are, are very mobile and very fluid? And if you start regulating the amount of existence, they can be back up and running within a week or two somewhere else in the world. That's exactly it. And it, it comes down to, is everyone, is every country going to stand up at the same time and ban it? Um, no, because as you, as you say, Michael Saylor said, that's a $1 trillion mistake. And I think most countries will be reluctant to make that mistake. I mean, we've, se- we've seen China make this mistake time and time again. They've banned Twitter, Facebook, Google. That doesn't stop them becoming the biggest companies in the world. Right. So I think you kind of look at it as I actually see Chinese technology banned as quite a good buy signal for many companies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the record shows that, I mean, they banned Twitter in 09. They banned Facebook in 09. They banned Google in 010. These things, these companies have gone on to make thousands in returns. Yeah. So banning Bitcoin from a Chinese perspective is not a worry. And I see what you're saying about it might concentrate in other areas, but you'll see that they're starting to split off. They're going bit to Kazakhstan, bit to North America. They're not all concentrating back into one other area. So if anything, it might not be as decentralized, but it's definitely going to be a lot more decentralized than it was in China. Okay. Now, for those who are a bit hesitant about cryptos, and there's quite a community of them, you know, amongst the money web readers or listeners. Can you lay out the case why crypto should form a part of any responsible portfolio? Or is it the case that this is just not for everybody? So I think you can make the case that crypto as a standalone investment will not be for everyone. And that's because every person has different risk tolerances to investing. Some want stable cash flow, some want risk. Otherwise, we call volatility in investing, um, but they get compensated for that risk with reward. So, as you say, if it's part of a responsible portfolio, there is a case for it. Um, so, as I said, like the risk is is huge, but people have been rewarded very handsomely for this risk. Bitcoin is up over two hundred twenty thousand percent in the last ten years. I mean, that's you've never seen an investment like that in your lifetime. But obviously, the trick is it's very volatile. But Bitcoin, and I'm using Bitcoin as an example here because it has the longest history. So for us to do any form of relatively decent backtesting, we need years and years of data. Bitcoin, unfortunately, or fortunately, is the only one with over 10 years plus of data. And what we see is Bitcoin has a unique ability to be uncorrelated to many assets, if not all assets. And this is its greatest benefit, is its diversification benefit. I mean, as Harry Markowitz, a Nobel Prize winner in uh, economics said, diversification is the only true free lunch in investing. And, and that's Bitcoin's power. So there has been studies that have found that around 2 to 5% of your investable wealth in a crypto asset vastly improves your risk-reward ratio um, on your investment. Now, keep in mind, this is a young asset. And as data comes out, as the years roll on, these findings can change. But for the most part, at, the, at this current time, 
it's showing that about a two to five percent um, inclusion in your portfolio greatly benefits your portfolio. So yes, I would look at at something like that if you are a hesitant and um, well, let's go with a responsible investor. But two to five percent is more than enough. You don't need to be throwing tens, twenties, thirties percent at this. And the idea that cryptos do not generate an income that seems to be also being challenged. There's a lot of developments which are happening in the decentralized finance space. Uh, there's a company called Orbit that uh, we interviewed some time back where you can now invest and earn a return on gold and what were previously considered sterile assets. What are some of the trends that are in this space that are catching your eye? Yeah, so you're right. So finally, finally, we are seeing in crypto that it's able to generate cash and a lot of it, by the way. Um, and it seems for the first time that you can start to use things like from the from the general finance, the traditional finance side of life, such as DCFs, to start to value these things, which is a discounted cash flow model. Um, so you can start to actually put a attach a value to these coins, which is a huge deal for institutional investors. Um, so if you had to take a look at like Uniswap, an area that's really intriguing me at the moment is decentralized exchanges. So Uniswap is a decentralized exchange, mainly, <clears throat> mainly meaning that people can go on there, swap or trade their coins like they would do on Binance. But Binance is a corporation that's owned by someone. This is literally just a piece of software that does peer-to-peer -peer swapping. That's extremely powerful. Um, and basically, it gets its revenue from charging a 0.3% fee on these charges, and that goes directly to liquidity to providers. So me and you could be a liquidity provider. And all we do is we go put up our coins that are available to trade and you get paid this fee. At the end of the day, when you want to pull out your coins, you can go in and pull out your coins out of these pools and get them back. That gives you a stable income. And to put in perspective how much volume these exchanges are doing, I mean, in Q2 of 2021, these decentralized exchanges did over $405 billion. That is, it's, it's a remarkable. Um, they've done 120x increase year on year. And Uniswap is the largest and most successful exchange. And they're basically accounting for 50% of this volume. So that's an area that's really catching my eye. One, because I can now earn a stable income. Two, because, because it's cash generative and investors, institutional investors can actually do DCF models and value these coins, I think that that is where main institutional money will start to flow in the future. Okay, for people who are new to cryptos, maybe just spell out, uh, people who are new to cryptos and want to take a conservative approach, what's your advice to them? My advice to them would probably be the same advice that I would give anyone looking to invest in any asset class, whether that be gold, property, stocks, and even crypto. They're all just different risk levels. But the fundamentals, I think, of investing apply across the board. One, if you're looking for a quick buck, you're going to get hurt. Two, don't invest more than you can afford to lose. I mean, those are the, the stock standards. And for some reason, people in crypto, because they've seen these ridiculous returns, they think it's a quick buck. And these retail investors are buying in at 60 and it's going to 30 and they're selling out. And that's the issue. They, they could have bought at 60 and in two years' time, they're going to be laughing. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But it's a way better 
tactic than sitting there trying to look for, oh, I'm going to put in a thousand dollars. It's going to be worth 2 million in two weeks and I'm going to be rich. That, that doesn't work. That always ends in tears. So some people might put in 20%, 50%, even 70% of their investable wealth into these assets because they unequivocally believe in it. Whether you do or don't, I think that's irresponsible. I mean, no one can really predict the future or, or no one can tell where the markets are going. And if they, if they say they can, they're really lying to you. So I think it's just about being smart and putting an amount that works personally for you. For some people, that's 1%. For others, that's 5%. I think you just got to look at it as your in your own personal capacity and just look and say, I'm going to be in this for a long time and what can I afford to lose? And that's the way you should look at any investment. I mean, there are people who take a far more aggressive approach than that. Um, one to 5%, yeah, that, that would be, um, there would be a range of between conservative and aggressive there, but there, there are yes. people who are a hundred percent in Bitcoin and some of them are also backing certain stocks like um, Bitcoin mining stocks that you can buy on the Toronto Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, for example. Um, but they're, you know, they're 100%, and I've spoken to quite a few of them because they, they see this as the future, and this is an opportunity maybe once in a generation to, to transform your, your wealth from mediocre to somehow you know, pretty comfortable. But, but do you not think that you can do that with 5 to 10%? Have you seen, I mean, you've seen these returns over the years. There's, I don't think there's any reason to take 100% risk on anything. Right. As an asset class, no, I don't see, I don't see that as being smart at all. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I'm trying to ward off for, for a couple of investors. A lot of people, because it's going to be um, the retail investor that ends up getting hurt by this because they're going to go in with 100%. Well, those institutional investors are doing it by the book they're using it as a diversification and they're using it to enhance their yields the people that go in 100 percent and lose 50 percent in a month i don't know i don't know who you are if you if you don't look at that and feel so hurt that you actually end up selling you need to be in it at a level that you are comfortable with the volatility of the asset and that's really the key so if you're comfortable losing half of it at a certain level then that's your level Right. If you're not, you shouldn't be at 100%. Well, just on that point, uh, Bloomberg had a story out. It was either, to, I think it was today, where these companies that are big backers of Bitcoin, like MicroStrategy, like Square, are now having to report to shareholders how do they account for this big drop that they've had in, in, uh, in Bitcoin, for example. MicroStrategy, they've got $2.25 billion invested in Bitcoin. So as a corporation, they're the largest. By far the biggest, of course, is Grayscale. But um, it's a point, you know, you're going to go back to these guys and say, you're making a big bet on Bitcoin on the assumption that this is all going to be very rosy five years from now. But are you absolutely certain about that? These are questions I'm sure that stakeholders would be sensible to ask. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's exactly what they are asking. Um, but when you look at it, it's probably from... I mean, Michael Saylor's perspective, he's looking at it in the fact that saying my money is just losing actual value every year regardless. And this asset class has proven to do exactly the opposite of that. So, yes, I think he's taking a big bet, but he's taking a bet on a cash balance of the company. I don't think it's – that's not a 100% bet, but it is still a substantial bet, and these are questions he will have to answer to. Um, but he's uh, he's got his full board's approval, so I'm, I'm sure he's – He's sitting there 
saying, guys, this is the view. We're taking a 10-year view on it. And from all intensive purposes, this should work. All right, Brett, uh, Revix, your, the company where you're working, they recently launched a, a new product where you can earn US dollar-related interest by investing in stable coins. Now, okay, again, for people who are not familiar with what a stable coin is, probably just explain that. And why is this such a big deal? The fact that you can earn, I understand it. You're earning US dollar returns on a US dollar backed crypto, basically. But just give us the background to this. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you said, Revex are doing a US dollar savings vault. So, this is basically just crypto language for a US dollar denominated savings account like you have at a bank. Um, but now it's with USDC, which is a stable coin. And as you said, let me just explain what a stable coin exactly is. So a stable coin is basically a type of cryptocurrency that tracks the value of an asset, whether that be government money, gold, property, whatever. And there are three basic common types of, of stable coins. There's commodity-backed stable coins, there's fiat collateralized stable coins, and there's crypto-backed stable coins. So USDC, um, which is the stable coin we are using, is a fiat collateralized stable coin, meaning that it is backed one-to-one -one with the underlying government money, so in this case, USD. And basically, it will hold reserves, T-bills, all short-term investments that were fully collateralized, $1 to one coin in issue. <clears throat> so it tracks the dollar one-to-one. -one. And why this is really a big deal, it's mainly a big deal for South Africans. So to understand this, we first need to make the distinction between what South African RAND savings are and what US dollar savings are. You can't compare South African RAND savings account rate, which is a RAND denominated account to a US dollar savings account rate. I mean, that's you're not comparing apples with apples there. And the reason obviously comes down to something called RAND depreciation. And this basically means that while you're in a South African savings account, although the interest rate might be three or 4%, which probably is currently around there now in the current savings account, you're earning a currency that is devaluing against the US dollar every year. And in fact, it's actually devaluing about 6.2% year on year for the last 50 years. So therefore, if you wanted to look at a US dollar denominated savings account, which is what the USDC savings vault is, you should actually be adding that 6.2% to the existing rate to make it a RAND equivalent rate. So now you can kind of tackle the question and look at the, the Revix um, USDC savings vault and say, well, this thing allows me to earn 4%, around a 4% yield a year with low, low minimum deposits and a sub 24 hour withdrawal. I mean, you're not gonna get that in, in South Africa. You're gonna be tied up for a month or two if you wanna get a bit of a higher yield. Deposits can go up to 100,000 minimum to get even more of a yield. If we're offering a 4% yield in US dollar terms, you actually got to plus that depreciation on your current RAND to get to a RAND equivalent, which gives you about a 10.2% RAND equivalent savings account. That's a big difference from a 3 to 4% savings account in South Africa that you're getting at the moment. And that's kind of where the power of this, this product is. I think it's also worth pointing out that this is one of the astonishing benefits of cryptos and stable coins. You know, you can actually take your RANDs on the Revix platform and you can purchase USDC. So you can convert your RANDs into dollars and earn 4% per year on it. And just think, you know, if this was available 
10 years ago or 20 years ago, what that would have done to your wealth. Um, and this, I'm cycling back now to Michael Saylor's argument. He looked at what has been the rate of depreciation of the US dollar. And the rate of depreciation since the Second World War is about 3.4% per year. Now, that's a lot less than the RAND. I think you recently calculated the RAND depreciation over the last 50 years or so at 6.2% a year. But just think about the compounding effect of that over time. And the fact that you can actually take your RANDs and put it into US dollars, and you, you're, you've insulated yourself from that particular trend. Yes, the US dollar is also depreciating at a certain amount per year, but not by the same as the RAND. Yeah. But you're earning a return on that. So you can actually build up your US dollar holdings without investing any new cash. And, and this, uh, it, it just astonishes me that this is one of the great benefits that you get coming out of the crypto space, one of the innovations that, and, and there, there are more to come, no doubt. You agree with that? No doubt, there's, there's definitely more to come. As you were just saying now, that, that 10.2% saving, if we take the depreciation and um, the actual yield of 4% that you're getting, in, in 20 years, that's a 600% return on something that is stable. That doesn't change value. That's, that's quite astonishing. Okay, um, running out of time here, but a couple of things I just want to go over with you quickly. We started off at the beginning talking about grayscale trust, which is a way for institutions to invest in Bitcoin without actually investing in Bitcoin direct. So you can buy grayscale shares. Yeah. Now, grayscale trades at either a premium or a discount to Bitcoin. And in the, in the early part of this year, it was trading at a premium of 30 to 40% at times. It's now trading at a discount. Just explain to people who are listening what do we learn from this? What does that tell us? Yeah, so basically what, what used to happen was there was a huge demand for, for Bitcoin exposure and Grayscale was pretty much the only regulated option. So therefore, the huge demand for this, this actual type of product pushed this um, Grayscale trust into a premium. And the premium was up, as you say, like 30 to 40%. And basically what happened was a lot of arbitrages come in and go, well, I can give my Bitcoins to Grayscale, get shares at NAV value, at the actual value that they are. And in six months time, or it used to be a year, used to have a lockup period, in a year's time, I can sell those Bitcoins and make that premium. Because what they would actually do is buy Bitcoin and short the market. And then they would just take that difference at the end of the year. Basically what's happened is now there's more options. There's not just Grayscale anymore. So the demand for Grayscale, although the demand for Bitcoin as, as exposure is still going up, the demand for Grayscale's one might be different. There's ETFs opening up in Canada, and this is obviously taking away some of the institutional demand. The other factor is the lockup period has gone from a year to six months, which means that and, and the uh, over-the-counter trading of these shares has become more liquid. So the more liquid something gets, the more its actual price discovery um, takes place. And that premium wasn't going to last forever. The bigger and bigger Grayscale get, the more liquid their shares get in trading in a secondary market, the more it travels towards true value. And true value would be north. And that's kind of what you've seen happen um, over the last few months. Right. I, I think the, the discounts, it went from a premium of 30 to 40%, and then it went to a discount of about you know, 20%. In other words, you could buy these shares and it would be a cheap way to, to acquire Bitcoin. Um, but th that is now trending back towards zero, Yeah. Uh, the last I looked. So I don't know that that discount is going to be around much longer. No, 
I think, see, as, as these discounts come into play, the arbitrages come in and do the absolute reverse. And as soon as they do the reverse, that gap closes. I mean, this happens in every market. There's never, there used to be a, a crypto arbitrage between countries. Um, one was in South Africa that used to be about four or 5% wide. You used to be able to buy it in the US, send it to South Africa and make four or 5%. That's closed down to a percent. And that's basically due to the fact, as I said, as liquidity comes into these places and price discovery becomes a lot sharper. Right. Final question here. Any predictions for the next six months? I mean, we started off talking about some of the indicators that you are using and what does that tell us about the future of the Bitcoin price? But we're talking like December. Where do you see this? Are we going to be in near all-time highs or are we going to be pretty much where we are right now? <laughs> I, wish, I wish I knew. If I had a crystal ball and I knew, I would be a very wealthy man. But um, what I could say is I possibly, I think the bottom's locked in there. Um, and that's coming from me. I thought two months ago, as you said earlier, I thought 20 was was on the cards. Um, I've just seen a strong resistance at this 30 level. And I think I think our bottom is, is locked in here. We look very much like July 2013, as I said earlier. And so I think there's a positive tone around Bitcoin again. Uh, there's none of this negative news really coming out. I think when it rains, it pours. So Bitcoin took on negative news after negative news after China ban after this. And we've seen a positive turn here. And I, I, I'm hopeful for the, the end of 2021. I think, I think there's going to be a, a pleasant surprise. Whether I'm not going to stick a number on it and, and put my neck out. But um, I think we'll be in for a pleasant surprise at the end of 2021. Well, on that positive note, we're going to call it a day. That was Brett Hope Robertson, investment analyst at crypto investment company Revix. Thanks very much, Brett, for coming on and talking to us. Thanks a lot, Kieran. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.